From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. Lean Done Right can dramatically boost the value of any enterprise over the long term, argues Cliff Ransom. For decades, Cliff has been analyzing the value of companies by researching and above all visiting them to suss out the integrity of their lean practice. Welcome to WLEI, the podcast of the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm your host, Tom Ehrenfeld, and today we will drill down into the lessons learned from Cliff looking at public companies through lean-colored glasses. Welcome to the LEI podcast, and it is my great honor to have Cliff Ransom as our guest today. Cliff is well-known. He is the unique position of being one of the few lean uh, investment gurus who has decades of experience identifying extremely well-run companies based on their adherence to lean principles. Former chairman of the Shingo Institute, many other accolades which we can describe, but Cliff, welcome welcome aboard. How are you? Thank you so much, Tom. Okay. Always happy to be working with LEI. So let's start. Tell me, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated with your work, and I think it's a great reminder for all of us in the lean world that there's absolute um, applications of this that have material impact on the performance of companies. So can you please give a brief definition of lean as you see it and explain the correlation of lean to the performance of publicly held companies? Gosh, I hate to try to define lean on an LEI broadcast, but- By your standards. I got it, I got it. Um, That what makes lean work is that it is a system It is a mindset, it is a process, it is not a tool bag. It is not anything anywhere near that simple. It begins with fundamental principles that are true across the world in every field. And those principles help shape and define behaviors that that lead to results which are important to investors. The behaviors are what creates confidence both amongst the actors involved in the lean process and in their owners and shareholders and suppliers and customers that that organization will be able to uphold standards that Everybody cares about quality delivery, you know, service, etc. So to me, I need to go to the Gamba. I need to go to where the real work is done and make sure that it's not just something that God bless the chairman may give at a conference for some big investment firm. I need to see that it is widespread and um, I need to see that its benefits are accruing to the corporation and its constituencies. And over your many years of doing this, you've been to countless Gambas, 
and you tend to report on companies that you observe are doing it well. You have your uh, kind of exemplary companies, your your so-called uh, super perform super achievers and next generation Danars. Tell us what you yeah. mean. Well, they're both terrible phrases, but as Jim Womack says about the word lean, um, it's a terrible word to describe this process, but it's the only one we've got. I named my super achievers when I started my firm, which is a, a uh, an independent equity research firm. And throughout these visits, your deep dives, you are using, you have this, these lean colored lenses through which you're viewing what you observe. So you're, you're implicitly comparing it to some pre-existing uh, principles that you believe they should be following. Well, I know what very good looks like. I know what very good looks like because I've probably read every book on the subject. Yep. I've been active in AME and Shingo and half a dozen other organizations and I've had the unusual benefit of having had Danaher take me under its wing 30 years ago as they were starting their lean journey and I will argue that Danaher is the best lean culture on the planet after Toyota the difference is that Toyota is in a terrible business automobiles and Danaher has been able to shift and morph and transition into what is now a life sciences, health sciences, technology kind of business. But Danaher has also spun out a couple of its companies. And one of them is in the process of, has just spun out another. So I've got a couple of people who are, you know, world-class role models. Now, let me, let me quickly say something here. I don't care where a company is on its journey. I've called these companies super achievers because I believe that they are truly ingrained. But if they fell backward, or if they even stopped advancing, stopped improving, stopped progressing, I'd knock them back down to next generation Danaher's in a heartbeat. Now, the super achievers started out to be Danaher, Illinois Toolworks, United Technologies, now merged with Raytheon, and GE. I flunked on GE, but I will also tell you that in 2003, I didn't want to buy GE, but they had an appetite for risk identification and risk remediation that struck me as a process that was extraordinarily valid. ITW is not a lean company. ITW is an 80-20 company. But the rigor with which they apply that process is just as strong as lean companies. Now, I added companies. Actually, the fifth company I added was Roper Technologies, which at the time was not lean, but it had an extraordinarily disciplined process, cash flow, return on investment, that, was, that gave it the characteristics of... Uh, what I call my CRISP acronym, and we can get into that later. I subsequently added Honeywell, which is a traditionally lean company. I added a couple of the Danaher spinoffs, and I added uh, Parker Hannafin and Crane, 
uh, because they were doing a terrific job. Now, the next generation Danaher, Danaher's are not a farm team. They're companies who are on a genuine lean journey, well-defined, well-trackable. Um, sometimes I follow these companies for 10 years before they make it to super achiever. That kind of irritates a few of the CEOs, but I just say, you've got to prove it to me. You've got to prove it to me. Right. Unlike many on Wall Street, I have a very long-term perspective. I'm still thinking in terms of three to five years. I don't really give a damn about next quarter. Frankly, if it's a super achiever and I'm right, and they, for some reason, put out a quarter that's misunderstood by Wall Street and the stock goes down, I will be asking my clients to buy more of it. I will tell them we've been waiting for a dip. This is it. You told me to call you. I'm calling you. Um, so I have, I have on, there are about 50 companies on my next generation Danaher list. Um, I've thrown a few off and I've been a little more patient with some than I should. And I've had a couple like, I'll just say it, Xylem that really flunked on its lean journey twice materially before getting it, my technical term to get it um, the, on the third rebound. And they've been proving to me since Patrick Decker got there, the, the CEO, that that's a sustainable thing. Let me let me interrupt if I if I may. And not um, no interruption. Go ahead. So you go to the you go do your deep dives, and you're assessing how well these companies um, you know are following some very deep principles. And uh, while a very important principle you talk about is to buy cultures, not stocks. What are the tangible um, uh, practices? of companies with, with a, a healthy, lean culture? What do they do? How do they think? Like, what are you looking for? Well, it all starts with, you know, the Shingo principles, which were, you know, they're all purloined from Toyota. Well, we've all been stealing from Toyota and one another for 40 years now. Okay. Um, the first lean investigations went to Japan in the early 80s. Um, we didn't even call it lean until the late 80s with the publication of Jim and Joe's book. Uh, the, well, I'm sorry, the output of the, of, the, of the transportation study group at MIT, to be fair. Um, so you got to go to Japan. You got to go to companies who have inculcated these policies. And, and there are things like, to me, number one is respect for the individual. If you're not treating your employees and your customers as individual human beings, you're never going to be lean. What, is that, what does that mean operationally? What I mean, dr let's drill down on that because it's uh, that's well and good and inarguable in some ways. But, um, you know, we, we've published books with LAI that I think give some um, substance to what that means. But in your book, what, I mean, what does that mean? What does it look like? What is it? Well, let me, let, me, let me digress a half second here, and maybe this will help illuminate the subject. I tell clients who say, I want to learn about lean. We want to pay you to come in and teach us about lean. And I say, I can't do that. I said, first of all, I sell fish, not fishing lessons. 
and I don't know how to price, how to teach you about lean. And anyway, it's not my skill set. It's not really what I want to do. I'm not a consultant. Um, what I do say is, if you will travel with me, I will show you lean. Because until you've experienced it, you'll never freaking understand it. It just won't happen. And then I'll say, if you're really brave, I give a week or two of my time a year to one or two companies, and I go work on a Kaizen activity. Could be on a factory floor. It could be, you know, working with uh, people building an, you know, an equipment configurator. It could be any number of things. And I say, until you get your, you know, body greasy and hot, and climb up inside of a 150-ton Minster press, you'll never understand what one-piece flow means. Okay. Um, and so they, they have to, we have to get people to think about that because continuous improvement, that second principle that guides me, I think those first two lead to all the rest, leads to um, uh, voice of the customer, leads to how Hoshin Conry works. It leads to uh, how you go through the day. What kinds of questions, I mean, it can be as fundamental as do you bark orders all day long or do you ask questions and train people to become problem solvers. Okay, so. The, the job is to create a community of self-motivated, self-actuating, self-policing, self-regulating uh, problem solvers who can do, and independent. And sometimes you have to stand back and say, well, oh, they're going to fail with that, but you just have to let them do it. If Toyota is correct in its admonition that we learn more from our mistakes, our flaws, our failures than our successes, let me tell you, Tom, I'm on my way to becoming the smartest man in the world. <laughs> but I, I think the hazard of, of that, to say that it first two principles are respect for people and continuous improvement, you have to mention the very kind of tangible prescribed methods of operationalizing that, of, say, uh, producing in flow products that are pulled by customer demand yep. using um, principles, say, of Jadoka, which is you stop at every defect, and using Kanban cards to regulate the flow of goods within the system. You know, it, it's, I'm just saying that are, are, are there minimal known techniques that you also look for when assessing how well companies are practicing lean and how valuable their engagement in these activities are? Well, I say look up. Three things. Look up, look down, and look around. Look up at the lights. This applies in an office, too. The lights and the condition of the ceiling will tell you more about what those people think about the people that work for them than anything else in there. It will tell, tell you more about their dedication to high quality than anything else in there. You can argue when you see cutting fluid or hydraulic fluid on the floor. 
you know perfectly well that machine is not being well maintained. And if it's not being well maintained, it's not going to hold specs. And if it's not going to hold specs, it's only a question of time before you hope somebody pulls the andon cord and stops production. Then you, you look down, you look at the floor. I sort of got ahead of myself. You look at the floor. Is it clean? Is it, is it, um, is it shadow boxed? Is the stuff that it's shadow boxed for in the shadow boxes? Um, and then the third thing is you look around. You have to be able to see the flow and the velocity. You have to see that there's one piece between every stage of production. I've been in so many plants. It drives me crazy. I'll leave the names for my clients. But there'll be, for example, uh, if, there are a lot of people who make tractors. So I'm not picking on any one person or heavy machinery. There'll be a gear that's three feet across. And it has to go through a variety of different cutting functions. And there'll be 10 or 12 gears between these gigantic monuments. And I'll say, well, why, why do you do that? You know, well, why do you do, have you considered doing something different? And it doesn't take a long time. Now, sometimes you have to be really polite. My instinct, look, I, I grew up in a command and control environment. People told me what to do. Then I told people what to do. And for the last 15 years, I've been trying to just ask questions. And this is very hard. It requires a fundamental restructuring of how you go through life. It has a, it is, it's something that you have to just remind yourself over and over and over again. So if I see Kanban cards, if I see small supermarkets, if I see one piece flow, um, I was in a plant in China, a, a power tool company. Again, it'll go nameless. There's a bunch of them. And they wanted me to look at their factory from up on a balcony. And I said, no, nah, I'll tell you what, you guys can stay up here if you want. And I just ran down the stairs and walked out on the floor. By the time they caught up to me, I was standing in a cell making a tool. And I said, you do know this cell is going to stop in 47 seconds, right? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, because you've got no, you've got no work balance on this place. I've already figured out the, not the tack time. They didn't even know what tack time meant. Production time per tool. And there's only enough parts in that bin that you sent him at the beginning of the line. And it's just going to all stop. I said, now, some of these guys are going to be working for half an hour because they got so much intermediate work in process. Well, as I said that, in China, they're so smart. They have the women be the supervisors, much, much wiser than having the men be. This woman is running down the aisle holding a tray of that initial component to feed the line before it stops. And I turned to the plant manager and I said, you really don't think this is lean, do you? And he said, no. And I said, well, then let's do something about it. What do you got? What are you going to do the rest of the afternoon? You got a crowbar? You know, let's go fix it. Um, if they faint, you've got a problem. I'm not really suggesting we fix it. But I'm trying to see how they feel about that. Because that'll tell me more about how the supervisor thinks about it. 
I guess what my question has to do with is whether you contrast some of these more abstract aspirations, respect for people, continuous improvement, and so forth, with a kind of mandatory compliance, wrong word, but to some established operational principles working in Tom, you're being, I would argue you're being, you're going to get irritated with me here. You're being too formulaic because every situation is different. Okay. Um, I will look to see what are they measuring. If they're measuring equipment efficiency, I'm going to be suspicious right there if it's OEE because that's usually the biggest contributor to the number one waste, excess inventory. If they don't start if, if they don't start every meeting, every annual report, every daily management walk, every piece of standard work with safety, I know they're never going to be a super achiever. If you don't have a safe environment, you'll never get my number two requirement, which is employee engagement. Okay. Nobody wants to work. I learned this at Caterpillar when they were doing, when they finally got serious about lean maybe 20 years ago I mean, they've been messing with it for a long time but i mean serious in the in the in the in the mothership the plant in peoria and i said well why are you doing safety and i said because if somebody thinks he's going to go home and say to his spouse well old fred lost his other hand today because he the, the light shield didn't work and it whacked his hand off they're not going to be productive okay yeah, yeah. and you know um uh, Bob Chapman uh, runs a huge private company. He says, we're going to treat these people like their family. We're going to treat them just like their kin. And when you do that, then you can think about flow and velocity. You can think about cost. You can think about quality. You can think about delivery. But all those other things, I say to CEOs all the time, you're measuring the wrong stuff. Okay, well, let me let me ask you. Let's talk about Danaher. Danaher yeah. is... is the company you have admired for decades. What have they done so well in, in a lean sense, uh, both in an abstract way and practically that has earned your um, respect? They've produced lean operations for almost 30 years now. They've done it across every business they've ever touched. And they do it in a non-negotiable way. If you're running a plant in Tajikistan, you're gonna probably run it with lean principles, modestly different than if you're running a plant in Erie, Pennsylvania. But everybody knows that basic rules are absolutely the same. I used to tease them in the 90s because they all ran around with Franklin planners under their arms they all ate sushi. They all spoke in Japanese. And I said, you're like a damn cult. Well, you know what? Cults can get a lot of stuff done. And I've watched people grow at Danaher, but they grew with purpose. I'll tell you a story here. Yeah. George Sherman was brought in by the Rails brothers, the two very bright brothers, always treated as financial guys, but frankly, they were the, they were the, Steve Rails was going to Japan in the early 80s, way before the, all my dear friends said, I've been 
looking for 30 years for lean companies and I have 10 super achievers. My universe, just in my industrial universe, is probably 2,000 names. And in my tight universe, what I call my MIRU, the monitored industrial research unit, there's probably 200 names. And of that, we've got 50 next generation Danahers and 10 super achievers. So it's, uh, it's a little bit like blood clots with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's a pretty low percentage. And speaking of Danaher, I mean, they have performed consistently, spectacularly on an annual basis over three decades, correct? Yes. I forget what the stock annualized, what the... Oh, God, I don't even know. Because it's getting very complicated because they've had these spinoffs, which have all done very well. Um, all I know is that uh, um, if you, I did this calculation once. The, the returns have been in the thousands of percent. I don't have the number in my head, but if you started off with $100 of Danaher stock, you're going to have a lot of money in Danaher and Fortive and Vontier and, you know. Right. And, you know, the Rails has started off with a million-dollar loan from the Maryland National Bank and, frankly, not a lot of equity. And they're both worth a couple of billion dollars each 30 years later, 40 years later, to be fair. Right. Um, that's, that's okay with me. The point I was going to make, this business of purpose, George had, been, had come from Black, George Sherman was the first outside CEO. Steve Rails was the first CEO when it was just a, a hodgepodge, a collection of companies that they pulled together, cats and dogs. They all generated cash because these guys understand free cash flow. That's a mantra. Um, and they hired George Sherman from Black & Decker, where I'd known him for at least a couple of years because he ran all the power tools side of the house. And uh, he went to Danaher. I got to tell you another quick story first. He went to Danaher and I, I called him up and I said, George, what's all this Japanese you're mouthing off to Wall Street? Nobody knows what you're talking about. I lived in Japan. I don't even understand most of these words. Didn't you tell me that you should never bullpucky a bullpuckier? And he said, Cliff, come with me to Bloomfield, Connecticut next week, and I'll show you. And there's a long story there, but that's where I went on the floor of a UAW plant in 1990, Rust Belt, Connecticut, a disastrous recession, and saw Lean working for the first time. I spent about three hours in that plant. When I left, I said, I've just seen the future. I was a little early, but that's all right. I had seen the future. George had been there maybe a year, okay, maybe less. And he said, I think I've just, he called me up and he said, I got to tell somebody this, not material, non-public information, but I've just hired a guy I think will be my successor. I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are you talking about your success? You've been there for a year. He said, oh, no, I mean in 10 years. He said, I just hired this guy, Larry Culp. And 10 years later, Larry was the CEO of Danaher. Larry retired from Danaher, did a bunch of really interesting things, and he's now transforming General Electric as the, as the chairman and CEO. I'm telling you right now that what he did at Danaher if he's successful at GE, it's going to pale in comparison. Danaher is so far ahead, GE will never overtake him. That's not the point. But if you look at, you know, where Danaher was after a year or two or three or five or even 10, I think the next, well, he's been there now for two years. So I'll say 
three, four, five, ten years of cult, it'll be the most profound lean transformation in the history of the lean movement outside of Toyota in the early 50s. What's interesting is the extent to which Larry Culp talks about lean um, within the company, um, talks about lean as a mindset. You produced a newsletter that annotated a letter that Culp shared to his, uh, with his employees. And even um, at a company level, they are producing a lot of company-written stories, sharing very tangible stories of lean practice uh, around the country. And I, I think that GE is a hard company to talk about because people have a lot of bias about it. I think it's global company, and I think only two states matter, current state and future state, in that it's all about where it is right now and what Culp um, seems to be doing. I have not been to a GE factory. The point on GE is that because there's such a dearth of knowledge about lean principles and lean thinking and lean cultures, and those are my words, and not not lean calculation of the next quarter. I mean, I use lean techniques to produce reports. Yep. We've got standardized work for how do you write, publish, distribute. We've got lean, we've got standardized work for everything. Well, that's anathema on Wall Street. Um, <laughs> it says they think it's an art form and we know it's not. Um, I, I just, I'm going crazy because I see what he's doing and I'm very encouraged. And I know when he arrived there, I said the very earliest we're gonna see any advantage to this, the typical length of time between, call it the introduction of lean and where we begin to see it, we as outsiders begin to see it is uh, in inventory. Jim Womack says inventory is an indicator that does not lie. Yep. Yeah, inventory, in, inventory is also cash. Uh, and, you know, Shingajitsu calls it sleeping cash. And so many companies don't get that. The, uh, the point there is that had we not hit COVID, which destroyed half their healthcare business and boosted the other half, destroyed their aviation, I don't mean to say destroyed, put serious dings in their very best businesses, healthcare and aviation. And um, that's coming back. All of that's coming back. I'm not worried about that. But when it comes back, because he's been in place now for two years, May 20th, 2019, I believe, is, was his first President's Kaizen in the power division in South Carolina, North Carolina, sorry, I get the two confused all the time. Um, he took 120 of the senior people at GE. I mean, these people ran billion dollar businesses themselves. They were gods, they walked on water and he went in and he said, we've got four big problems in this plant and you're gonna learn this week how to solve them. And it was like, it's like, it's the same thing with me and and Bloomfield, Connecticut, at Jake Break, the scales fall from your eyes and you never look at the world the same again. And if you don't have that phenomenon occur, you're not very long. Some of the people who were at GE who had 
storied careers. One division got to be famous for what Larry wound up calling fake lean. And that guy's not there anymore. And there are people running the business. And in that case, it was somebody he brought in from outside GE, brought him in from Embraer, who's now running that business. That's the non-negotiability of this thing. I, 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 what I'm hearing from you is that Culp has been making a very serious effort to transform a, a company that's been in a very dire... Uh, well, I would argue that he's already made more progress than I would have expected, absent the COVID influences. Okay. He's brought in people from the outside. He's, he's advanced people from the inside because he, after George Sherman, he's a very close second in terms of who's been most generous with, well, I don't want to, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that have been extraordinarily generous and, and your first two CEOs at LEI were two of them. Culp has done so many nice things for me has, but my admiration of him has nothing to do with that. It has to do with what he did and what he produced and how he thought and the kinds of people that he created. And I, you know, everybody at Danaher today uh, has worked with him, or, you know, up until the time he left. And I'm seeing what he's doing at, at GE. Remember at GE, there was a huge cadre of people that understood lean thinking. There are people right. there who's been working with Shingojitsu in the semiconductor freaking plant right. for 30 years. Right. But they never got support. Jack, Jack did, people complain about Jack, but we have to put people, we have to put managers in their time, in their historical time frame. And yeah, Jack was ruthless, fire the bottom 10%, but Jack also said, if you're not gonna be number one or number two, get out. Jack also said, you will go to the aftermarket you will learn how to operate there. You will learn how to sell spare parts and repairs and, and uh, upgrades. When Jeff Immelt came in, he got dealt an impossible deck of cards. I don't know, it was practically hours after he took over the job when an airplane that they owned with their engines flew into a building that they insured. What I did see was that Jack and Jeff both never made lean the number one priority. For Jack, he was transfixed with Six Sigma, which he learned about from Motorola and Allied Signal. And I would say to him, because he was very generous with me too, I'd say, Jack, you're missing the point. This is one of 50 tools right. in the lean quiver. And it's frankly one of the most complicated tools because some people don't get scared off by the math. We'll be right back after this short message. Join hundreds of your lean thinking peers online at the second annual virtual lean learning experience, where you'll get actionable ideas and inspiration that will re-energize your lean journey. Featuring a new money-saving flexible pricing plan, a VLX Enterprise subscription gives you and everyone in your organization a new week-long live seminar each quarter plus 12 months of access to the growing archive of recorded seminars. Each seminar will feature at least six presentations from successful lean practitioners who are leading their industries. Learn more and register at lean.org VLX. That's lean.org VLX. 
let me let me shift gears a little bit. I mean, I think that again, I, I I'm I'm taking a formulaic approach of trying to quantify uh, what lean looks like, and um, let me ask you about an, your acronym of CRISP, and you say that quality lean companies perform according to this acronym. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, you know. A, Can you define a, it and tell us what? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and it's perfectly appropriate for you to reuse my word formulaic because I've got an acronym for one. CRISP, I spell it C-R-I-I-S-S-P. For every letter in that word, you get about another half or full multiple point on your valuation. I went back up a second. Remember, how do investors make money in a stock? Well, they say, well, the stock, the price goes up. The earnings go up. I say, well, yeah, the, but the earnings are only one of the drivers. The other one is the valuation that the street puts on it. And that is usually reflected in the price-earnings ratio, the P-E ratio. It's really the, it's really the inverse of the discount rate that you'd apply to it. And um, because discounted cash flow is the measure of value to me. Okay. So when a company demonstrates that it can be C, consistent, if over a very long period of time, the average market multiple is 15 times, they start there at 15. They're not below 15. If they do it long enough, people will say, oh, well, that's repeatable, R. Then I get a little interesting. I say, okay, I can read that in the financial reports, but then I want to go Look at the first I, which is improvable. Can everything they do be improved every hour, every minute of every day? Is that the expectation? Not better next quarter. Every hour of every day. The second I I had to make up is integratable. Can you spread this thinking across not just all of your business, but all of your value chain? If you're not lean from the beginning of your supply chain to the end of your aftermarket or service business, you ain't lean. It's just that simple. And then I say, is it scalable? Can you integrate it across everything, everywhere in the world and do it again and again and again? The second, the second S is really the most important letter in the equation because that means you can sustain it. Okay. 30 years ago, I made up a statistic. This is a wonderful story. I made up a statistic that 97% of companies failed at lean and only 3% got it right. About 10 years into it, I said 5% of companies get it right. I told everybody it was a back of envelope, wag, wild ass gas kind of a thing. Well, it's become gospel. I hear it, I hear it quoted by people a whole lot smarter than I am. And of course, they have no idea where it came from and it's hogwash. But the fact of the matter is most people don't do it. To me, the biggest sin in a lean transformation is failing at it. I say, don't even start it. You will confuse your employees. You'll confuse your suppliers. You will definitely confuse your customers. You'll confuse the regulators. You'll confuse the people in the houses outside the plant. You got it. So sustainability is very important. I'm an investor. I want to buy something and hold it forever. I don't want to buy it because it's a steel mill and has a good year every eight years. You can make money that way, but I, I'm not nimble enough. 
And then the last word is really not one that the company does, but it's one that Wall Street comes to believe. I say Wall Street doesn't know much about lean, but they'll say, oh, well, that's predictable, P. So if it's consistent, repeatable, improvable, integratable, scalable, sustainable, and predictable, that's when you go from 15 times earnings to 20 times earnings. And in this market, it means you go from 25 times earnings to 25 times earnings. And those are elements that are supported by operational lean practice. Yeah, and I want to make sure we understand that when you say operational, there's a, there's a risk in the, in the, well, I'll say in the Wall Street community, but also in the, in the business community. They think lean is a factory floor tool. It's not. It's a way of life. It's a it's a reordering of your DNA. It's like CRISPR for your you know your genetic right. makeup. Right. Um, and if it's not showing up in carpet land, you know the back office, accounting, finance. Um, one of my favorite questions is to ask a CFO if I were to ask you to define the difference between lean accounting and accounting for lean. How many of the people in your department could could answer that? And it's only about half of the half of the CFOs that know what the hell I'm talking. It's a trick question. Um, I hope they don't listen to this call. Um, the um, if you would never be so mischievous as to ask a trick question. Oh, oh, <laughs> thank you, Tom. I our listeners can't see the uh, air quotes. I'm I'm. <laughs> Yeah. Winks I'm giving you. Are my eyes rolling? You know, after you do a couple of thousand interviews, it's just not hard to figure out who you don't need to talk to for very long. If I get the right guy or gal, I won't leave. And if I get, if I really get the right guy or gal, they won't let me leave. Because they'll say things that's the ultimate compliment to me. You ask the kinds of questions that we ask ourselves late on Friday afternoon. When I go to visit a company, I have to be able to talk about stuff that Wall Street doesn't talk about. One, because I don't care. And two, because I just think it doesn't have much relevance. I don't need to know somebody's bloody tax rate. I'm going to adjust for a normalized tax rate anyway. If it's an Irish company, I'm going to know what they did. It's not a big deal. It means they save cash. I like that. I like that. I, I, I have always said I love financial en- engineering as long as it's within the gra- grounds of the legislation. If, and and if, you're, also, you're also kind of um, touching upon a lean notion that take care of the process and the outcomes will take care of themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I just want to circle back to the kind of magic of, of your going and doing deep dives. And let's, let's just tell me about a visit pre-COVID. You don't need to name names, but what's the kind of last gemba you observed that really got you excited? What did you see? What have, what have you seen that said, wow, this company gets it. Look how well they're reducing injuries or whatever. I'm just curious. Well, I don't want to 
to say the last ones, but I'll give you some examples. Um, and this is probably uh, years ago. Uh, Regal Beloit bought a bunch of motor lines, electric motor lines from GE. One year later, the CEO had an analyst meeting in New York, and he brought seven of his management leaders with him, and they ran his seven biggest businesses. Four of them were from Regal Beloit, and three were from GE. So he not only bought product lines and installed bases, he bought talent. What was more important to me was that two of the Regal Beloit people running Regal Beloit businesses had come from GE. And two of the GE guys went to run Regal Beloit businesses. So he'd cross-fertilized in that year. And I said, this is really, really impressive. That's the kind of thing you see. I wouldn't expect it of any company, but when you see it, you have to recognize it. I spent three days with uh, a very bright, in those days, young manager named Aaron Ravenscroft uh, when he was at um, Gardner Denver. We went into one of his plants and I got into one cell and I asked a lot of nasty questions. He had said, ask anything you want. He knew me very well. And ask anything you want. And two days later, I called up. I mean, I was saying things like, why do you have this big piece of metal welded onto the side of this cutting machine? Well, it's to keep the shavings from going all over the factory. It's to splash the hydraulic fluid back in. He said, well, it's not working very well, is it? The floor is grimy and it's covered with metal. So I called him up a couple of days later and I said, how did your guys from that plant respond to my, um, my, um, questions. I said, did I, I was trying to be polite, but you know, sometimes it's hard for me to be polite. And he said, oh, they hated you. I said, oh God, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't mean to do that. He said, oh no, you don't understand. They hated you because you, they said to themselves, why didn't we ask ourselves those questions? Why do we have to have some guy in a suit from Wall Street come in here and see these obvious things that we should have gotten? Well, that told me something about that plant, didn't it? that I couldn't have found any other way because they were actually very intolerant of what they were doing. Yeah. They were very early on in a lean transformation. Now that fella is today, 10 years later, running a multi-billion dollar company, Manitowoc Crane. He's still only about 40 something years old. I'm going to go back out to Manitowoc with him in two weeks. It'll be my first on-site visit in whatever that is, 14 months. I've been in that facility probably seven or eight times over the last 48 years, 40 years. Back to when John Grove owned it, when the Bass Brothers owned it, somebody else, then Manitowoc owned it. Now it's a new management team. I'm going to see things there that are going to be very, very different. I've been in the plant three of those seven times in the last five years. And I, I bet I'm not going to recognize a damn thing there. Or if I do recognize it, I'm going to be asking Aaron, why the hell haven't you changed this? As a kind of closing question, um, we can go one of two ways. I want to ask you for your kind of pithy, explanation of why uh, lean creates company value 
or uh, maybe we can combine that question with, um, you know, again, tell me a handful, remind me of what companies are doing lean really well today that we should be keeping an eye on. Well, I think all of my super achievers fit that mold. I'll do, answer it in reverse. All of my super achievers fit that mold. And now I told you I made a mistake on GE. Well, I'm not making a mistake on GE now. Danaher, United Technologies, ITW, Honeywell, Roper, Parker Hannafin, Crane, Fortive, Vontier. Um, there's a whole bunch of the next generation Danahers who are doing wonderful stuff. I just got to get back in their plants yep. to confirm back in their offices, back in their labs, back in their accounts receivable department, go talk to the human resources people, go talk to the bartender in the bar across the street, talk to the priest in the you know parish, you know, what do they tell you? Um, I mean, I think um, there's a lot of those. I think Webtech is a very good company in that score been flat for about four or five years and if I'm right it's going to be really interesting what was Regal Beloit but now did a big name change and it's now called Ingersoll Rand Vicente Reynal is doing one of the fastest transformations I've ever seen I want to make sure it's as deep and wide as I think the company that they did that asset swap with actually it was a reverse Morris Trust but who cares um, Ingersoll Rand is now called Train Right. Mike Lamock has been my my prototype CEO for ten years. Um, and and your assertion is that these companies. Will... Well, let me answer. Let me answer the first part of that question. Go ahead. The answer is they do well in the stock market. I just they're none of the super achievers without without with the exception of of uh, GE and and Crane, which is not well understood, have been great investments. Look, I, I'm in a business that gets measured. You know, I'd say I have a three to five year horizon, but everybody else in my industry gets measured every day at 402 when the market closes. Well, now it's 40000.1 because the computers are faster than they were when I came in. Um, I'm not sure that's the right, I'm not sure that's the right measurement. You know, we have a, going to run over, but you're going to cut stuff too. The, there's this whole ESG environmental sustainability governance thing, the whole sustainability issues, circular economy, circular business models are very important. Well, I'm picking up new clients because they're coming to me because they understand that S, that second S in my CRISP acronym, because they're in business to do sustainability and they're doing it because not just they're goody goody because companies that act responsibly and sustainably invariably do better. Okay. Invariably do better. And I tell them that I think sustainability is nice, but it's only one part of lean and they should think lean, not sustainability. It's an interesting conversation. Thanks so much to Cliff Ransom for his always frank and challenging insights. Thanks also to John Cotter and Pat Panchuk from LAI for their work on this podcast. And of course, thank you for tuning in. Join us next month when we talk with author Roger Martin about his new book, When More Is Not Better.